0: Hello, I'm Eliza Anyangwe, Managing Editor at The Correspondent. The Correspondent is now one year old. In this, our first audio editorial report, I will share an abridged version of what we are most proud of having achieved and the decision-making behind our journalism. You can find the full version of the report on thecorrespondent.com. In 2018, the founders of a member-funded Dutch media platform wagered that there would be demand beyond their home country, the Netherlands, for deeply considered, beautifully presented ad-free journalism. That broke free of the tyranny of the 24-hour news cycle. Enough demand to launch De Correspondent in English. And so they proceeded to test out their hypothesis. They weren't wrong. By the end of that year, 48,933 people had joined this movement for breaking News. I was among them. It would be another nine months before the correspondent would launch in English. This time, I wouldn't just be an ardent supporter. I would be helping to recruit a team of 13, eight of us here in Amsterdam sharing office space and learning from our colleagues in the Dutch newsroom, who had six years of experience of doing what we were about to attempt. Our first five correspondents were strewn out across the globe, from the US to India via Nigeria, Great Britain and Italy. In a world full of cynicism, and few professions have more cynics than journalism, ours is an unashamedly idealistic, ambitious project. We believe unwaveringly that quality journalism can change how people see the world around them, their place in it, and what can be done about the colossal challenges we all face. We also believe that good design should cultivate calm, as we call it, rather than distract the reader, and that the creative on the page needn't be a lazy selection of stock images. Rather, when carefully considered, photography, illustrations, data visualizations, video and audio can elevate and add layers of depth to a story. In fact, they can be the story. We are driven by a belief that journalistic transparency, where the journalist is both open about having a worldview and willing to share their learning curve, which simply means informing readers when the point of view changes, this can help build trust. We're convinced that when enabled and incentivized to do so, people will lend their expertise, experience, networks, knowledge and time to help us to tell better stories. Last but not least... We believe that people are willing to pay for this, not as consumers of a product, but as supporters of a mission to make the world better through furthering our collective understanding of it. Like I said, unashamedly optimistic and idealistic. On 30th September 2019, the correspondent cast off, publishing the mission statements of our five English language correspondents and then proceeding to figure out in real time how we'd live up to the promises of the crowdfunding campaign. With goals as ambitious as the ones we've set ourselves, while we're firmly on the right track, we've only taken our baby steps in the direction we wish to travel. And so there are also lessons to share that we've learnt along the way. A movement is a community, and we wouldn't be a very effective one if we didn't also reflect transparently on our interactions with our members since launch. So here's the overarching message. It's been a roller coaster year. When in January 2020, founding editor Rob Weinberg declared that March would be a viral month, speaking of his desire to create buzz around our journalism, he could not have predicted how right he'd be, albeit in a very different way. There's been much to celebrate since September 2019, from insightful stories to member growth and most recently, the launch of our brand new audio app. Some of you may be listening to this on that. But we're only just getting started. Because in a year when crises have spanned the globe and misinformation has spread faster than solutions, when the news has overwhelmed and depressed and much of the media has seemed to do little more than fuel polarization, it's been absolutely crystal clear that the mission of the correspondent remains as relevant today as it ever did. We have work to do. By design, the journalism of the correspondent is determined in large part by our journalists themselves. They are the conversation leaders, as we call them, knowledgeable about their beat, developing a strong sense of what stories need to be told, informed, of course, by their sources, their interests, their research, their communities of concern, and by the world around them. We do not seek to respond to news events, too often the news is ephemeral, while we want our journalism to have a longer shelf life. If you are writing about structural, systemic, or foundational themes, this can't be done quickly. While some details will, in time, need updating, the central insights of our stories should remain relevant long after the story has been published. In addition, to be conversation leaders requires our correspondents to have a voice and a view, but do more than just espouse their opinion. All good journalists are primarily driven by curiosity, not by a desire to simply proclaim what they already know. At The Correspondent, we ask that our journalists make their view plain in their writing. We ensure that their convictions are evidence-based and accessible beyond the communities of expertise they might reference. But above all, we ask them to be open-minded. Theirs is a job to learn about the world and not just to explain it. By virtue of what it attempts to achieve, this approach to journalism is not easy to do and can take some getting used to in a world in which there is so much talk about objectivity but little consensus about what that actually is. It has been challenging to strike the right balance between regularly publishing new stories and allowing a small team of writers enough time to arrive at stories which are indeed worth publishing. It has also been very challenging, and I would say the thing I have found most difficult, to keep on top of the hundreds of freelance pitches we've received over the past year. To give freelancers with the potential, the time and consideration developing stories for the correspondent would need. And to meet the expectation, which was often expressed, that every pitch be personally acknowledged. Pictures from writers in the global South who understood our mission and approach were few and far between, but we'll get to this later on. Presenting our insights more simply and our journalism in smaller, more digestible chunks has also been a challenge. The latter we first started to do with a format called Too Long Didn't Read, social storytelling, and most recently with read-out-loud stories. It cannot be underestimated how difficult it has also been to work across time zones. Still. Year one abounds with examples of journalism that we are really proud of. Let's start with our correspondents. Five amazing correspondents have been at the centre of the journalism in Year one Better Politics correspondent Nesreen Malik, Sanity correspondent Tanmoy Goswami, First Thousand Days correspondent Irene Caselli, Climate correspondent Eric Holthouse, and Othering correspondent Olutimehi Adegbeye. Each in their own unique way, they've demonstrated what news can be about when it's not tethered to the traditional news cycle. Their journalism has taught us, amused us, motivated us, informed us, inspired us and even at times enraged us. Oluti Mehia who sees her writing as making a case for radical love as a political position, showed time and again the subtle and not so subtle ways various people are deprived of dignity, rights and respect, deepening societal divides. Her stories have been impassioned and beautifully written. Her newsletters conjure up a gamut of human emotion. Irene Caselli has been unwavering in her passion to reveal the mysteries of the first thousand days of human life and how they shape not only who we become as individuals, but equally influence our collective futures. She is collaborative to the core, working with other correspondents to tell stories at the intersection of their beats and even helping a member discover the story of their own birth. Though Eric Holthouse will be leaving the correspondent, his climate reporting showed that the systems that extract from our natural world for profit are the same systems that have for centuries also treated people as factors of production to be exploited. He made the case that we cannot dismantle the one without dismantling the other, and invited others to the platform who've been saying the same thing for a long time. You would be hard-pressed to find another journalist who has written about mental health with the compassion, clarity and commitment that Tanmoy Goswami has shown over the past year. He has not shied away from using his own experience of mental illness as a starting point for journalistic inquiry, but his curiosity has taken him much further beyond it to consider everything from self-care to guilt and sex bots. And his work is making an impact. Not only has it resonated with many members, it has also contributed to changes in academia. I defy you not to enjoy listening to his essay on why we need to hit the reset button and repair our broken relationship to anxiety, read by Eleanor Cowdell. Nesreen Malik's perspectives on global political affairs are highly original. Sure, she writes... Much ink is spilled every day over President Trump's words and actions, but the story of US politics today is actually the lack of response to the drama instead of the drama itself. And sure, a wave of protests against racism in the US has rippled across the world, but that same movement is also the result of decades' worth of slow systemic progress with more people of colour holding seats of power and more white solidarity for racial justice. Amid all the cynicism that modern politics provokes, Nesrin has been adamant that there is still cause for hope, even in politics. I've talked about how we've been approaching storytelling over the last 12 months, now for perspectives from across our newsroom on the highlights and struggles from year one, because it would be short-sighted to think we could revolutionise what journalism is without changing how it's done, and with whom it's done, and how it is shared and because I think we ought to give our members and audiences an insight into what it takes to create journalism, some warts and all. You'll find on the website the financial report which shares details about the sustainability of our journalism. First, the copy editing. As with everything correspondent, our approach to copy editing tries to preserve the correspondent's voice. This has meant not just judicious editing, but also becoming familiar with the Dutch concept, doubting, which means something close to putting things in perspective, but it's often mistaken for mere opinion writing. Our copy editor, Sean Lavelle, has had to figure this out in real time, while simultaneously developing a style guide that reflects the transnational nature of our journalism. We spent the first year thinking a lot about language, from what kinds of headlines will draw readers in without being clickbait, to considering the political nature of language itself, how it can normalise dominance or erasure of certain groups. Based on what we've learned from our members, our journalists and our industry, we've adapted our use of language as we've gone along. For example, we are not the only newsroom which recognises that referring to people as the disabled, the elderly, the poor, goes beyond describing them to defining them. Many in the media now use poor people instead. But prompted by Ruthre Brechmann's piece and Sean's own research on the subject, we decided that we needed to go a step further and use people living in poverty instead. Next up, creative. A picture is worth a thousand words, as the adage goes, and the correspondence editorial designer, Afonso Gonsalves, worked with Dutch colleagues to elevate our storytelling by creating typography, infographics, other forms of data visualizations, and visually arresting stories for Instagram. We work with independent creators too, as image editor Lisa Stratzma explains. She says, the moment I choose to work with an image maker, I ask the person to tell me about their vision and voice and see the rest of the process as a collaboration instead of an assignment. Describing her approach to creative in our journalism, Lisa adds, it can, for example, be about adding information in the form of an infographic or historic photo or about adding a second perspective to a written story. We also show art and photography projects that have been independently created by makers. By showing them in a different context, a journalistic one, both the written text and the imagery get a new meaning. Book clubs, live chats in the contribution section, virtual panel discussions and call-outs Over the course of year one, we've been experimenting with numerous ways to catalyze knowledge exchange amongst members and between members, journalists and invited guests with relevant expertise or experience. According to conversation editor Nabila Shabir, the concept of memberful reporting has been at its strongest through our sanity and first thousand days beats. What could have been done better, I ask her? Call-outs for actions where we can really bring together a wide-ranging group of people with expertise or experience, or inspire them to take action, comes Nabila's response. For some asks, it's okay, she says, but not everyone will send in a photo of a street for a piece about everyday colonialism. On engagement. Social media remains a powerful tool for sharing journalism and building communities, but every social media platform requires time and a unique strategy to increase engagement. They can be toxic environments and it's hard to break out of one's own echo chamber. Still, our engagement editor, Imogen Champagne, has brought the fizz, I hope you see what I did there, to a plethora of ways we can engage with audiences. The sizeable gap in time between the end of the campaign and our launch has been an audience engagement challenge. As so many people we refer to as founding members contributed to make our journalism possible and then forgot about us. In some way, it's useful to see those people as fans of our mission and not yet members of our movement. We can, however, be proud of the numbers of people who engage with us daily through the newsletter Imogen Writes. Every day, between 12,000 and 15,000 people open the daily. The weekly maxes at 17,000 people. While the correspondent exists as the antidote to the daily news grind, it was remarkably easy to become the thing we did not want to be, a content production machine as we sought to deliver a newsletter that highlighted a new story every day. But we soon learned that there was no correlation between open rates and newness. Imogen says... We now talk more about the insights we want to share and not about the latest story we've published. When it comes to member support, it's easy to take for granted how supportive our relationship with our members is. Three months after launch, we ran a survey to find out what our members, the vast majority of whom had signed up during the crowdfunding campaign, made of our progress to date. We got responses from 26 different countries. 74.2% of those respondents gave us an 8 or more out of 10 on whether they'd recommend our journalism to others, saying they valued our independence and using words such as interesting, well-researched, thought-provoking, insightful and honest to describe the stories they'd read. In fact, when First Thousand Days correspondent Irene Caselli's newsletter was mistakenly sent out to thousands more people than had subscribed, the response was overwhelmingly empathetic or pleasantly surprised. I didn't know about this newsletter. How do I sign up? came the response in emails. Our member support manager, Carmen Schack, had to kill, dead, any thoughts I was starting to brew about making the same mistake twice. However, it is important to acknowledge that we haven't always and in all ways been a well-oiled membership machine. It has at times taken us weeks to resolve technical queries, for example. And of the members who responded negatively to the survey, they cited the lack of investigative reporting and a liberal bent as the reasons for their displeasure. Overall, says Carmen, the correspondent member support is a positive and appreciative place to be. Keeping it personal always pays off. Newsroom culture is often taken for granted and certainly rarely accounted for in a report such as this one. But conceived as a distributed team whose members represent many countries and cultures, both professional and personal, it was vital that we thought very intentionally about culture and how we might build one together. There might be much more harmony in homogenous teams, but there is also much less innovation. On this, I worked most closely with our editorial assistant, Sabrina Algub. She and I thinking up meeting formats and various other processes. As with every other part of our startup enterprise, the learning curve has been steep but the work fulfilling. Working remotely was a challenge from the beginning, as Sabrina puts it. Ever since the correspondents left Amsterdam in September 2019, we've had to figure out how we would work across four continents. We've definitely had ups and downs, but when March came and all over the world offices and newsrooms were being transferred to Zoom, things didn't change that much for our team. The processes we had already figured out helped us to transition smoothly from part office base to working fully remotely, says Sabrina. Inclusive journalism is definitely easier said than done. Progressive media have long talked about diversity, equality and inclusion, the things that we want to see in the societies we write about. The correspondent is no different. In fact, our principles explicitly state our intentions for our newsroom and our journalism to reflect the world in which we live. But, like most other newsrooms, there is a large gap sometimes between our principles and our practice. From the launch of The Correspondent, we knew that success in this regard isn't just a matter of desire but also of networks and intentionality. And the latter starts first with having uncomfortable conversations and then tracking our progress. To the former, we needed to ask ourselves, what would a more inclusive newsroom and journalism actually look like? This is an answer we're still formulating, but we know that better representing the world we serve is a start. If journalism doesn't tell you what to think, but rather what to think about, then the preoccupations of a very small demographic have long-shaped Western media. That can no longer cut it in local or national media, let alone on a platform attempting transnational journalism. We intend in year two to develop an API and diversity dashboard to help us track our progress, both in terms of diverse staffing and diverse sourcing. But for this year, we have manually reviewed every single article published between 30th of September 2019 and 31st of August 2020, looking to answer this question. If our journalism is intended to help audiences better understand the world, what subjects are we publishing about? And who are we giving platform to to write or otherwise inform those topics? Here's what the data tells us. During that recorded time period, the correspondent published a total of 225 stories by 64 writers, the majority of whom can be identified as white, female, and based in the global north. That's 66.8%, 52%, and then 74%. Of the topics we've written about the most, the five most popular are human life, climate, politics, migration or immigration, mental health, and digital rights The latter two both come in at 5%. Where it gets more interesting and more damning is who we are quoting either directly as primary sources or indirectly as secondary sources. Our sources will always outnumber our journalists, so these numbers are more indicative of whose knowledge, insight, expertise and experience we are centering. Our primary sources were 59% male, 59% white, 62% global north. Our secondary sources were 64% male, 77% white and 94% global north. Put another way, our primary sources are slightly skewed to white men in the west. However, the books, articles, research papers our writers quote are overwhelmingly produced by white males from the northern hemisphere. With our creative work, we also see the same bias – 80% of the commissioned creative material was produced by white people, 95% of it in the Global North and 69% of it by men. And below the articles, in our contribution section, we often invite experts to engage with the members on the themes of the article. This group also skewed white and male. Tracking these numbers is essential for accountability, but it is important to acknowledge that identities are socially constructed, and so there is no foolproof way for accounting for diversity and representation on our platform. As the United Nations Statistics Division made plain when we turned to their site for help with decision-making on what to measure, it wrote, No internationally relevant criteria can be recommended. Still, we cannot imagine that we can effectively call out where power and privilege lie without also looking at perspectives. Who gets to give meaning to the world around us? What is the source of their understanding? In other words, will informed intellectual journalism always go back to Plato, Freud, Descartes or Friedman? If there is one lesson we must learn from nature, it's that monocultures are a bad idea. Our work to make our platform more inclusive must go even deeper than identity. We already know that the accessibility of our content on both the website and on our social media accounts can be improved for people with visual impairments, though we have been adding alt text to images on our platform since launch. Similarly, on podcasts made for the correspondent, we've included transcripts from the get-go. It is worth also considering the accessibility of the language we use, Journalism is about clarity, so can we do intellectually rigorous work without speaking academies? What are the other ways language can exclude? Ultimately, inclusivity is not a tick-box exercise. It's about culture, cultivating an organisational culture that embraces difference and continuously asks, are we living up to our principles? that actively seeks out lesser-known perspectives and prioritises building broader networks and doing it all because we believe it will make our journalism better. Over the last 12 months, we have navigated a transition to at-home work and continue to tell engaging, revelatory stories against the backdrop of pandemic, protests and much personal and collective malaise. The foundations are firmly in place and are getting stronger every day. It's now time to build.